Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello, and welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. This is Father Nathan Goebel. Joining me is my friend from across the pond, Father John Nepple. Greetings, Father John. Hey, good to be with you, Father Nathan. I'm with a skiing professional here who's coming off a... A big day yesterday. Ski Cooper. I only baby. fell three times, folks. Yes. Three times. Yeah. but Once uh, was in the ski line. <laughs> that was a... Uh, the lift line. It was, grace, it was a graceful fall, you know. This is Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Father John is already timing our banter, so feel free to sit back and relax and know that you only have to endure about seven more minutes of this. Well, here we are in Breckenridge, Colorado. Usually this is the time of year when we get the uh, band back together, but... Not this year. Yeah, we had a, a number of number of reasons why our brothers could not be with us. So, Father Mike Rapp in Rome right now, working away, doing his thing on the doctorate, and then Father Michael Lachlan not feeling well. Down for the count. Down for the count. So, anyways, this is the eighth anniversary podcast that will be coming out. Uh, it is. Can you believe it? The January sixth is the anniversary of the first one. I said to somebody. They said, well, how many years has it been? I'm like, well, it's the J10 initiative, That's so right. just figure it out from there. We'll let others do the math, the math mathematicians, but here's two. Yeah, Father years. John Father John wanted to pop off a bottle of Prosecco, but we're drinking, we're drinking something a little different. I don't think I've had a rum and coke since I was in high school. And by high school, he means when he was 21. Right, and uh, it's tasting pretty good. I measured it out for you because I figured you would complain. It was a little, it's a little weak. I knew <laughs> You just can't win sometimes. I'm surprised. Well, normally you just, when you're pouring drinks. Well, that's I tried to be very attentive. That's actually that's poured to proportion. It's very good. Yes. So, my brother, my brother got me started on rum and cokes. He loves them. Yeah, we don't really, we never really, had a, never been a rum family in the Nipples, you know. Oh, I mean, our family, we don't, they don't do much drinking except right now. My dad's into black velvet. Black velvet. Canadian blended whiskey. Yeah, it's pretty much go. the Canadian Jack Daniels. There you go. He drinks that with Pepsi. Nice. So, well, I can't tell you how good it is to be home. I'm leaving again on Saturday. These trips are too quick. Yeah, and it's back at it. But it's, well, the uh, thing is, you we've we have spent uh, since you came back June thirteenth, fifteenth of yeah. last year. Yep, of 15th, last year. Yep, and from then until now, I think you've only been away from the bosom for approximately. <laughs> Five weeks. Let's qualify which bosom uh, he's speaking about. The Archdiocese of Denver, of course. The neighbors, they adored him. So the backstory behind these bursts of songs, I knew it was coming out. You made it like a minute and a he's half. He's playing it. So uh, Father Daniel Eusterman's in the other room playing. Sufjan. Really disturbing Sufjan Stevens songs. We were at the uh, Lions Folk Festival, and uh, we were standing around beforehand. Father Peter Musset, myself, Teddy Hamstra, I think that was it. And we were saying, what songs do you want him to play? We didn't even know what he was going to play yet. We were waiting for this, for the for him to start. And Father uh, Father Peter Musset said, I want him to play for all the widows in paradise, which is a very good song. And I said, I have a crazy one that I don't think he'll play. John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. And he played it. And he said in the middle of his set, he goes, Not many people have a murder ballad, but I do. Yeah, and then he right. just started playing it, and I was like. 
tears streaming down my face. Yeah, that's really so, disturbing. Are you into the Tanya Harding, his latest? I song? actually, I actually haven't downloaded his album yet because I told myself that I couldn't do it until Christmas, and I just forgot. And then, um, and then Christmas came and went, and then Father Daniel Usterman was playing it on the Spotify or whatever today. So, and anyways, so you've only been away from the bosom of the Archdiocese of Denver for five weeks. Back on topic. Is that right? Eight weeks, but eight weeks? Yeah, six, and then you guys came out. Is that what you're talking about when you yeah. came out? Yeah. So we had the boys all come out. That was a great time, and then yeah, here we are back, heading back again. But I won't be back until June. Yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just counting the eight weeks. No, the monkeys in your head are making going, sure you're right. I can see those yeah, monkeys. Six more, six more months. That's we, it. We uh, we get together every year, all the companions this time of year, for our annual villa, we call it, which is a word we stole from the Jesuits. And it's basically just hangout time other than Holy Hour and Mass every day. Just relaxing. And uh, it often leads to bizarre movie selections and very intense games of cards. We, we watched Inside Out last night, Inside which Out. I think... For Father Brian Larkin was kind of a it was a core memory. <laughs> it was a watershed. <laughs> it was a core memory. I think one could say that it was a core memory. Yeah, yeah. Very creative. It re- I had very strange dreams last night. I don't know if you did, but after that, it's I had a dream. Trippy. I had a dream that um, somebody gave me uh, a pass to go to the um, to go meet the St. Louis Cardinals at a gala, and uh, I decided to go home. I, I had to cancel with somebody else. I don't know who it was. And uh, and then I was going to go home, change into clerics, just in case one of the St. Louis Cardinals is Catholic. And then later on, he's like, oh, my gosh, you're a priest. Maybe I could give you season tickets. You know, I had all these things planned out. And I get home to my house, and there's water coming from the roof and, like, dripping not only into the main floor but into the basement. And I spent the rest of the dream, like, cleaning up water. I'm actually not listening to you. And because... then I wet the bed. I'm trying to be attentive to the bodily sounds that I'm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. When you threw me under the bus that? a couple weeks, I was sick, man. When we recorded that episode, what that's why I was a little more nasally. It was a little more. What bodily oh, sounds? Oh, I forget. All of a sudden, did oh, I say I'm something? A little bashful on the podcast. What did you say? What did I say? I listened to like two minutes of yours and Olaf last <clears> month, <throat> and I was just like, this is just. I was just getting ripped to shreds, and I was like, this is what they do. This is what they do. This is how they was repay the me for all my generosity. It was everything. That's the that's the ice. So I'm trying to be very attentive to and the gulping. No Gulp. gulping, no gulping. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, dreams, though, nightmares. I had this nightmare that um, every morning I would get up and Brian Larkin would be wearing a Red Wings jersey. That was not a. Dream. Oh, that's reality. Yeah, it's I fun. literally go into <laughs> like PTSD when I see every yeah. morning red. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me! You're yeah. wearing a Detroit Red Wings shirt, and he thinks he's so cool. Because there's a guy named Larkin who plays for the Red Wings. Right. Number 91. I asked the same question to him because I was like, you know, I'm a Blues fan. You're an Avalanche yeah. fan. And we both come at it from a different vantage. But I'm like, why Why would you wear that? Why? And, and then, every... he turns, then he turns around and it says Larkin. I'm like, I don't care if it says Our Lady of Lords. Right. Like, get rid of it. Right. I mean, it's, it's literally the worst possible thing I could see waking up in the morning. I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> I could think of a few things. You've but... been listening to John Wayne Gacy. I guess there are worse things. It could be like... A body there after that game of Pinochle or something last night. Yeah. Speaking of which, Pinochle. Yes. What a game. I'm very happy that you learned that game because I actually, I I hate to say this, I I thought it was out of your league. uh, I'm happy you think so highly of me. Because I I just thought, you know what, 
He's going to stick with Euchre. Cribbage, you know, like that. that's where we go. But Pinochle, I mean, that's 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 getting up there. We, my, could, we could spend the next 30 years playing Pinochle. My father has been praying for my conversion, my pinochle conversion for the last <sighs> 25 years. And then the most amazing thing was, folks, I mean, you, you may not really care about this, but normally Father John and I are a team. We're a team. Normally. Car ramrod. Yeah. Okay? And uh, when we play, whether it's cribbage or euchre, we face off against the world. Right. And last Villa, do you remember that? Last Villa, we were riding the golden mushroom right. on Father Joe McLagan and Father Joseph Lejoie and cribbage. Oh, yeah. So bad that we were we were giggling <laughs> every single time we, we took a break because we were getting such good cards and we were just wailing them. When I listened to the, um, what's the soundtrack we were playing over and over again? It was again. Daft Punk. Daft Punk. Whenever I hear that, I think of just, just pistol whipping those guys and... But what people need to understand is that I play with Nathan partially because he's a, one of my good friends, but also because he's so violent to his partners that I, f- I feel like I have to save other people. It's an abusive relationship. <laughs> it is. I told, I told my brother that. He's like, he's like, do you and Nepple play cards together? I was like, Nepple is still holding on to one time. <laughs> I yelled at him in the middle of cards, and I said to him, quote, You don't know how to peg. Yeah, do you even, do you even know how to count? Like, it was just... It was just a throwaway line. Hey, core memory discussed it was a core, over there. Yeah, it, yeah. It was that was that. No, it wasn't. It was a melancholy. That was sadness. No, yeah, it was. I am. I am sadness. Now. It was probably. It was probably four villas ago. It was probably four or six villas ago when you threw a five into the crib, and I said, "Why would you throw a five into the crib?" And you said, "I didn't throw a five in the crib." I said, it makes no sense, given the hands that everybody has, that somebody else would throw a five in the crib. So I went all the way around the table, and I said, did you throw a five in the crib? Did you throw a five in the crib? And I got to you, and you go, maybe I threw a five in the crib. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Anyways, back to on topic. Pinochle. We played Pinochle against a formidable opponent, Father Brady Wagner. Yes. Who loses at nothing. 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 He's good at okay? everything. And I outbid him. Every single time, every single time, it was like it was like all of a sudden I tapped into like my Texas Hold'em skills or whatever, and I would just like kind of stare him down. I would just kind of go down and oh, look yeah. at my cards or whatever, and then it'd be time to bid, and I would just stone cold Steve Austin, just stare at him, yeah. and then and then I bid him up to thirty seven, <laughs> and then dropped it on him, and he didn't get the card he wanted. It's amazing. Some, some Jack Black song about mind bullets. That's what I was thinking about when you were just. I was like, what are you doing? You are mentally, you're in his head right now. Yeah. Probably the greatest memory I have of Pinocchio since I started learning on Christmas Day was uh, Andrea Polito was a couple cards out from a run and four aces, and she got bid way up. And um, it was like this pure experience of Sicilian emotion. She picked up her cards and just burst into tears. (laughs) It just (laughs) literally started crying and like emoting, and it was absolutely hilarious. And then the next round, she's feeling good, goes at it again, yep. gets set, bursts into tears again, and I was just like, "Man, this is a very emotional game." The I didn't, I've, ne- I don't think I've ever told you this story because you wouldn't understand, you didn't, wouldn't understand like Pinnacle or whatever else. But uh, Jake Schneider, myself, Father Jake Schneider of uh, Dodge City, Kansas, Imperial, Kansas, uh, myself and uh, Chris Constantine were playing three man Pinnacle. And Jake and I were outbidding each other and losing. 
we would ramp it up so much that we'd go set. Right. And then the other person would go and get it and ramp it up so much and they get set. So Chris was just getting his meld every single time and was almost going to win. So uh, I said to Jake, I said to Jake, Chris got up to go to the bathroom. Now we were behind, we were behind by over a thousand points. Wow. And I said to Jake, give me all of your hearts as he was in the bathroom. So you okay. cheated is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just we cheated. I said, I said, give me all of your hearts. Like while he's in the bathroom. So he gives me all of his hearts. We didn't, we didn't touch his hand. Okay. Uh, and we, uh, remove the cards that, cause you, you play three man, you, you have to put cards in the center and you bid on them or whatever. But, uh, we removed all the cards except, um, except, you know, um, except the cards in the kitty. We left those alone. We, he passed me almost every single card except one. We didn't know if it was in Chris's hand or if it was in the, the kitty. And uh, so I bid and uh, Jake gets out. Chris bids for a little bit. He gets out. And I get the kitty. And sure enough, there was like, a, say it was a 10 of hearts. So now I had a double run, double set, ace, ace, 10, 10. Like I not only had one run, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I had the other run, right. which is worth a thousand, fifteen hundred points. That's crazy. And I said, "Wow, I'm I I did pretty good." And Chris goes, uh, "Well, not enough to beat me," because he didn't know. And I said, "Well, actually," and I lay down the double run, and he doesn't know any of this. Chris Constantine never gets upset. He's like Brady Wagner, right. pure of heart. Right. He shall see God. Right. He throws the chair. He throws the chair like across the room, just just flips it, and he's like, "This is the stupidest game ever! It's the stupidest game ever!" And then I said, "I," but Jake and I are laughing, and I said to Chris, "We're just joking. We cheated. Um, you actually won." And he goes, "What?" I said, "I asked Jake for all my hearts. You were gonna win." And he goes, "Really?" I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "It really doesn't feel like I won." Oh man. Because he did win, yeah, but yeah. we robbed him of all of his joy. Yeah, yeah. which is kind of your modus operandi. Yes, because I am Wario, as we have learned in, you the, are last, Wario. in the last podcast. Uh, Molly Tynan was very interested to get the whole rundown of who are all the companions. So maybe I don't know if you have to copyright this thing. Yeah, if she gives but. me if she gives me another if she gives me another go <laughs> at uh, Hubert, maybe then I'll do there it. There you go. Hubert's yeah. got uh, the orange van. Do you see this? It's got a luggage rack now, a oh. ladder. And a light up Christmas tree. That's impressive. Yeah, Pinochle, what a game. We had a great hut trip last week with all the people and played a lot of Pinochle. And um, I'll tell you a game I don't like, though. Have you played the Monopoly? Charades. Well, I don't like, really like I'm not a charades guy either. Nobody likes that game. Well, I was out. We had like the plague strike in this hut. Imagine you're stuck in a hut with 16 people. All of a sudden, Steve Sale gets up there and starts puking his guts out. The flu is in. We're. We're all in there together, and it was like it was like an Agatha Christie novel. It was like every night one person would just disappear, you know. And they and were then out. There was none. And then there were none. Yeah, it was crazy. But I was out for the count. And everybody's laughing at charades. I come down. All I did last Thursday, I literally slept all morning. I come downstairs. I have a little amount of energy. I'm like, all right, I'm going to try and do something here, get my mind up. But they're playing Monopoly, but we don't have a Monopoly board because we're at eleven thousand feet mm-hmm. or whatever in a hut. So it's this card game Monopoly. Waste of life. I played one game, got destroyed by Sean Conroy, who's kind of like a Wagner type. Never megalomaniac. <laughs> yeah. 
And then I went back to bed for the rest of the day, and I was like, that was the biggest waste ever. So somebody maybe can redeem Monopoly, the card game, but Never it's just played not it. a it's not a well built game. It's just okay. It's just yeah. That's enough. Uno. Maybe next time bring in Uno. Maybe we'll bring in Uno. And we're done. Okay. That's 16 minutes speaking of, of straight ga- good banter. Speaking of games, folks, this flows in to uh, the topic. So it worked out very well. That banter was gold, by the way. I mean, it, t- it always takes him four minutes to get going. True. But then afterwards, he's rolling. Have you ever played the game Jenga? Two by four Jenga or regular Jenga? I've never played two by four Jenga, but uh, regular Jenga. Okay. That is a yes? That is a yes. Okay. Um, so, you know the strategy of Jenga. We're going into the topic. We're going to the topic. Okay. We just got to ease into it, baby. Ease into it, baby. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, I had somebody come up to me the other day at, uh, I don't know, Mystery Place. I don't know where it was. Um, and they said, why do we even have dogmas? Dogmas are pointless. Okay. Would your life really change if you didn't have the dogma of the Immaculate Conception? And uh, I sat and thought about it for a bit. And I said to him, "If have you ever played Jenga? Same question I asked you. He didn't ask two by four Jenga, but he asked. Uh, he said, yeah, I played Jenga. I said, that's like, that's like trying to remove the bottom level mm-hmm. and say, I still have the rest of the pieces. Because... The Immaculate Conception precedes every other dogma in a way, but it's it's dependent upon those other dogmas. Right. So it all fits together. Right. So it's not just like, you know, you can decide which one works, which one doesn't. Um, and But I thought it was a really good question. I mean, granted, like, did the Immaculate Conception still happen if we, even if we didn't have the dogma? Right. Like, for 1,800 years, they didn't have the dogma and the Immaculate Conception. And then eventually they did. But, I mean, like, did it really matter that they didn't have that at the beginning? Right. I think I'm feeling my palms get sweaty when somebody talks bad about dogma because this is my life. I'm a dogmatic theologian, and I will show my ignorance here briefly. But, yeah, I think we have to start with the question of why, why dogmas. And dogmas are only defined. Dogma just means is the Greek word for teaching, right? Doc, yeah. Doctrine is the Greek word, is the Latin. And so the reason we define is because something has been violated. That's always the history of the church when you look at the whole thing. Yeah, so it's the, a signpost. Right, right. Because it's not just like the Pope's like, oh, Pius IX's like, you know, what the heck? We need one more Marian dogma. Let's just yeah. do it, you know? It sounds great. So the question becomes, what's the role of Marian dogma? Well, it's oftentimes to defend Christology. If you lose a proper understanding of Mary, you pull out that bottom Jenga piece, nice image, um, you actually lose who Christ is. You lose the two natures of Christ. It's not just the, I mean, because in Jenga, you can sometimes pull out the bottom middle piece. Sometimes you can get away with that. But the corner piece right at the beginning of the game, you know. It's loco, man. It's loco. And if I if, if some Facebook devotee pull like makes a Jenga board and then pulls out the bottom piece, I don't care. Right. It's still a good image. Okay? <laughs> some th- people some people pose that the reason why the dogma of the Immaculate Conception came around at that time was just to show the Protestants at the time of the Reformation that we're still boss hog. Right. Okay. We're still we can still do this. But 
that if we just trying to if church if we're just trying to say the dogma of the immaculate conception has no other place other than uh, a show of force i think it, it misses the whole point of why we have dogma in the first place right. so Absolutely. i think that's a good that's a good clarification a lot of people were like why do i have to go to mass right. on december 8th you know i got another question that i hear about the immaculate conception a lot is well, why wasn't i immaculately conceived right why her I heard this a couple weeks ago. It's a little thing called tequila <laughs> and $3 hot dogs at Sonic. I, I don't know. Uh, what I told them was, I said... Every single person other than Mary and Jesus were maculately conceived. Right. Stainfully. So the, um, the answer that I gave was, and I kind of... When we were up in the hut, all of my homilies were... I was just like, I'm going to talk about Mary because this is like what I do all day yeah. long, all year long. I have nobody to talk about this with. So I gave a series of Mary and homilies, which was really nice. Holy Family, um, the Immaculate Conception, I mean, the um, Mother of God, it was all kind of right in there. But one of the things I tried to hammer into them was the reason for the Immaculate Conception was because this woman contributed the humanity to God. Yes. That is the reason. If you detach the singular grace, which you're going to talk about here in a second. Yes. The purpose of you, if you remove the purpose from it, from her motherhood, from the fact that she contributed the humanity of God in the incarnation, uh, then the whole thing falls apart. Then it just looks like this goddess that just kind of got zapped yes. and is elevated. We're chosen virgin. Right. Exactly. So I well, think that's the key. But the, the main question, the main question of the Immaculate Conception, which maybe we should just define it, you know, so that everybody knows right now. Right. Um, is uh, how can Mary receive something from Jesus before not only be, not only before he is conceived, but before she is even conceived? Like this is like outside of time, you know, all this stuff. And I'll get back to that. Okay. So why don't we just do the definition? Okay, let's I think start with the definition, folks. This is December eighth. December eighth. The, why we ask everybody to go to Mass, Holy Day of Obligation, okay? The Immaculate Conception. So this is the, this is the definition of the dogma from the, from the encyclical Ineffibilis, Ineffibilis, Ineffabilis, Ineffabilis. Keith Kenny's listening to this. Father Keith Kenny. I'm going to make sure I get it right. He's corrected me on my, both my Latin, uh, you know, podcast, whatever. Deus. What's the year? Uh, 1856. Something like that. A total <laughs> guess, but I think that's right. Okay. Uh, this is the paragraph from uh, the encyclical. Ineffable God. Let's just call it that. Wherefore, in humility and fasting, we unceasingly offer our private prayers as well as the public prayers of the church to God the Father through his <coughs> Son that he would deign to direct and strengthen our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. In like manner... Did we implore the help of the entire heavenly host as we ardently invoke the paraclete? Accordingly, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion, by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, quote, we declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, 
was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. End quote. I'm getting that as a back tattoo. Now, your family is from Florence, right? Or they lived in... Grandma, yeah. Grandma was. Uh-huh, yeah. You know the, um, not the Uffizi, the Academia, where the David is. Uh-huh. You been there? Academia. There is a beautiful um, image of the medieval debate of um, mm. of the Immaculate Conception. It's got all the kind of the medieval fathers because the reason, one of the reasons why this was so, um, such an interesting and controversial um, declaration was because the majority of the medieval fathers uh, did not hold to this theologically as the way that we understood it. Now, True. they were discussing and trying to understand it, but especially St. Thomas Aquinas. And this is kind of the big debate, or this is the big I don't know, triumph of Duns Scotus and his his uh, crew, the Franciscans, is that they they got this actually right. right. And there was a number of reasons why. Aquinas was actually being more conservative by following the fathers. Bernard of Clairvaux, a number of these guys. So it wasn't just like, oh, I just miscalculated on that last you know, right. step. But it was actually like, where are we understanding it? And the reason the reason for the medieval debate was to say, how does the soul form? And it has to be fully formed before the grace could affect. In Solman. So they were looking at it. The the medieval debate was really about the moment after the full ensoulment was the... So it wasn't like Mary just kind of grew up and then, you know, had some grace. But it was like, did it happen at the moment of her conception? Or did it happen literally the moment after her full rational ensoulment? Yes. So, Which is amazing because, I mean, uh, centuries later we would be having the same debate about when the person comes into existence, whether or not you actually have a human life, whether it's at conception or at what some people would call quickening mm-hmm. um, or ensoulment or, or I mean, some people would say even later. I mean, like once you have a heartbeat or something like that. But uh, the, the Catholic tradition has kind of come to a consensus that life begins at conception. Therefore, the moment that Our Lady's life began, she received the singular grace by the merits of her son to, uh, to receive the singular grace of being conceived without the stain of original sin. Right. So I ask a question. Well, I would just like to say one last thing on the medieval debate. Okay. That's okay, okay before we go into the big something, question. Something more theological than... Well, and, and this is... I used to think that... Aquinas' understanding of the Immaculate Conception was incorrect. And, and even to say incorrect is wrong because he was just theologically debating this. It wasn't doc, you know, it wasn't dogma, obviously, in the medieval period. But even with the delayed hominization, which comes from Aristotelian physics, it still was wrong because the principle was the grace comes the moment after. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's not just yes. because of a delayed not rational installment. So yeah. anyways, that's, okay, yeah. that's my final point on that. I guarantee you Father Keith Kenny is seething oh, yeah. in his chair right now. Yeah, that's right. Because because for him, as someone who is not a Thomist, but someone who reads Thomas Aquinas, there's a big difference, folks. We'll get to that in a different topic. Um, he would say that according to the to the to the physics and the anthropology of the time he would have been correct. And so maybe he would and have. And I would say go ahead and read the appendix at the end of the the Dominicans did a beautiful um, Latin and English 
version. Have you seen this published? Hmm. And there's a set of appendixes at, uh, at, at the end of each volume. There's like 35 volumes. Huh. And there's a great one on the Immaculate Conception. And that's where I'm taking this from. Sure. And I don't know. His name is Heath, by the way. Heath Kenny. That's right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I mispronounced no, that. No. Heath Kenny. Heath is the Dominican who wrote oh, the appendix. Okay. Yeah. He Heath. goes by Heath Kenny. Keith. Father Heath Kenny. Keith versus Heath. Round one. Yeah. His nickname is actually Toffee. Father so, Toffee. Keith, when you actually read that and realize that I misread it, just be gentle. That's all I ask. That's right. Uh, but I will ask you the same okay. question that I asked our ELC preschoolers. This is how you come to understand the Immaculate Conception. Okay? I ask you, Father John Nepple, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Hmm. I hate Quiz show. Quiz show. This is a quiz, quiz show. show. I didn't say quiz show. I just asked you a question. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I, I don't want to I don't want to play your game right now. You want to play it? Yeah, why don't you play your game? So the just egg. Theologically, think of it theologically or philosophically. What came first in the order of creation? The chicken or the egg? <laughs> I'm gonna get another rum and coke. How are you doing? You need a little more? You can't more? leave no, the God. room. No, no, no. That's good. The answer is neither. You're right. It's God. God came first. That's how you answer the question. That's how you answer the question of the Immaculate Conception. What came first? How can Mary, how can Mary receive the grace of Jesus, her son, when she's just in uh, I mean a, a conception at the time? Right. Because of God. Right. Because God's outside of time and he saw from the beginning that the merits of Christ would win grace for Mary, who would respond to his invitation and therefore would accomplish the the salvation of the world. And so he could see not just like um, that he was playing a, a, a Rube Goldberg game where it's like... Um, you know, I've set everything in motion, and there is no freedom. Everything's going to happen exactly as I want it to. Right. But that, in some way, that that Christ, Christ's accomplishment of His will would be perfect. And that, that the point of freedom is actually a really interesting one because one of the things that came up last week when we were in the hut talking about this was, well, then she wasn't free. She was just this kind of graced zombie moving through life, mm. and I was like. What we're hitting at is actually you have a fundamentally under, misunderstanding of what grace is, right? If you think that given grace, that this preeminent, prevenient grace given to her blocks her freedom, that she's not really human, you know, she's right. not really relatable, then I was like, you have a fundamentally different understanding of what grace is. Mm. If you think it's contrary to freedom, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which I think is kind of, you could look at the reformers and Luther and these guys and see this is where it starts to kind of split a little bit. There's some, there's some, I, I wish I had the Latin, but I don't because, you know, Father Keith would just uh, correct me. Can Again, we set Father Keith aside No, here? he sent me two text messages <laughs> correcting me both times. Well, you know what, then next time before Heath versus Keith comes out, we probably should research the topic before we start <laughs> talking. Yeah? Anyways, as I was saying, uh, there's some kind of Latin saying, I don't know who said it, but probably either Bernard or Augustine. I think it was Augustine. Anyways, it goes something like this. Please. Eve, what? Oh, go ahead. Do you know which one I'm talking ahead, about? No, no. Uh, to to be able to sin and to be able to not sin and to sin was Eve. To be able to not sin and not sin was Mary. 
to be able to not sin, to not be able to sin, was Jesus. Like, Eve and Mary both had the ability to not sin. Right. But they, 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 they could have sinned or not sinned. Jesus could never sin. There's no logical way in which Jesus would ever sin because he's God. Right. So while these temptations are real, Jesus wasn't just like, I don't know, Branson, Missouri, or, you know, like, you know, all the kingdoms of the world or not. Right. So anyways. Um, That's Augustine, you think? Thing. Sounds like a ghost. So, but I mean, I'm just pointing to the grace and freedom thing right, that, right. like, they still had freedom. Mm-hmm. Christ did not have grace. Right. He was divine. Well, his humanity was graced. He is divine. fully graced. Be careful. Now Heath and Keith. What? Are both pissed. Yeah, his whole humanity was graced. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay, but did, I mean, does he need it? There are worse people than Keith Cuddy listening to this podcast. One of whom is Austin Litke, who listeners, I promise you, I will get Litke on, and he can do a full rebuttal of this podcast. But um, I think one of the most important things I read was Ratzinger talking about in how his humanity was graced. Okay, I'll grant that. The first, and there's grace in the Old Testament too. Aquinas talks about this, right? It's there. There's antecedent graces. Fine. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know. Um, now you're now you're all bashful. No, I'm thinking. Okay. The um, but Ratzinger makes the point to say that the first Marian dogma is the most significant because it frames who Mary is and the whole point of her privileges, which is Ephesus, right? Yes. In the fifth century, so um, Mary's divine maternity—that's a 17th century phrase. The Theotokos is the actual uh, fifth century definition. Right that she is the um, God-bearer, that she's the mother of God, versus the, um, you know, Nestorius and these guys who said she's not, she's the kind of this hypostasis, the Christ, you know, just, she's just the nature. She's the mother of Christ. Just the human nature, yeah, the Christos Tokos, yeah. yeah. So um, as long as we keep the divine maternity at the heart of Mary and Mariology, it doesn't get weird because all the privileges then become in relationship from from that purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So this singular grace and privilege, as we hear Pius the Ninth talking, telling us, is at the service of this divine maternity. And I just I just want to kind of hammer back to that again to say because people who are not Catholic, they look at it and they say this this looks weird. And that started in the late Middle Ages when we started elevating the privileges, and we started thinking about we started unpacking, really with the what happens is so you have the 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 Christological debates of the fifth the sixth century. And uh, trying to figure out who is Christ. And that's where we start to reflect on Mary for the first time. And she becomes a defense of true Christology. Then you fast forward a couple centuries into the early medieval period. And the Cistercians, reflecting on actually on the Song of Songs, start to think about the bridal dimension of Mary. And that's where they start to unpack and reflect on, okay, if she is the mother of God, what does that mean of who she is? And what kind of privileged existence would have been fitting for that mission, that maternal mission. That's where the debates, the conversations about her immaculate conception, about uh, her assumption, all these different things, huh. right? Her, it all flows from her, her Christological foundations, which is that she is the mother of God. So then what came first? The chicken. Jesus or Mary? Right. Chronologically or theologically? 
Right. I mean, like, because you have, that's why I was saying, if you separate this out, if you separate this out, then you're actually, you lose the mother of God. You lose right. the, you lose her perpetual virginity. You right. lose, um, well, the assumption. And I think, I think in some sense, you lose your own participation in what God wants to do through baptism and sanctification because Christ wins these graces and privileges for Our Lady, but it's not like she's the only lottery winner. Right. You're going to end up in the same place, but she first, she's the model. She goes before all of us to kind of show, like, this is the pattern of our life. Right. If you take out that Jenga piece at the bottom, which even more, all of that you lose, like you're saying, but if you don't, if you don't get Mary right, like you're saying, you lose Christ, you lose all these things. You also lose Eve. You lose the new Eve. Balthazar wrote a book called Mary for Today, and at the beginning of it, he says the best place to start meditating on Mary in our present time is is Revelation chapter twelve, the woman, right, who is hmm. Zion, Mary, and the Church, the the unity of that, and um, that is you lose the woman, the complement, the counterpart, the response to the new Adam. And this is what Irenaeus and Augustine and Ambrose, they're all working this out early on. But we're realizing that God chose, he didn't have to, but just as the fall happened from a man and a woman, the disobedience of a man and woman, so to the redemption and the obedience that is proper to that would take place with a man and a woman. Mary being elevated by this grace, right, becomes the new Eve. And she also restores the feminine dimension of creation. She helps us to understand what it means to be in relationship to God, which is to be receptive, which is to be the complement, which is to be the the counterpart, so to speak, the one who works with, the helpmate. And so Mary's whole maternal and bridal existence becomes the very archetype, the very foundation of what it means to be uh, creation. And new creation, and hence church. Bingo. Yeah. This is my dissertation. What? What? Crazy. What? Here's another theory, and this I'm going to throw this out there. This might not be true. I think the loss of Mary in the 16th century uh, with the Protestant reformers creates, well, let's just say it, 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 it is part of the catalyst of this hyper-masculine modern Christianity that takes place. The loss of the feminine, the loss of wisdom, the loss of, of contemplation. Something collapses here. Yeah in the whole system and we're inheriting that and technology has made it even worse i think can i point architecturally to this yes i think that there is a huge difference between the duomo in florence which i don't think was made in the 16th century i think it was it was earlier, earlier yeah. which i think is the most feminine church and i think beautiful church that i've been in architecturally and masculinely I think St. Peter's is just a giant like masculine church like it's pretty much a bicep <laughs> like it's a huge bicep yeah and there and it comes right around the same time and there's a reason there's a reason why I think architecturally they built it you know as kind of a, a cornerstone a center uh, the center of creation like I think they were trying to say like you know this is this is a, uh, a really important piece of the tradition 
um, but it comes out of a theology that has lost something of the Marian dimension. I think that's a very interesting, interesting insight. The the Baroque certainly has that kind of tough masculine kind of you know potency. It's over right? the top. It's over the top. It's o- I mean not just the St. Peter's, but I just mean like Baroque in general is usually over the top. Right. Men are, tend to be over the top. And the other interesting thing, thinking about this theologically, not just culturally and architecturally, is there's no such thing as Mariology as we understand it until the 17th century. Suarez is really the first to, he's meditating on the uh, third part of the Summa, and he's really the first one to create the science of Mariology. Now, the problem with that is that you do that for a couple centuries, and it's like men reflecting on the feminine. It's a very scientific it's very rational. It's very ordered. There's beautiful things that comes from it. But part of the 20th century project was to deepen and to try and understand the role of Mary and the church um, in the way that the kind of medieval understanding and the patristic vision was. And I think that's one reason why Protestants nowadays are so uh, concerned about Mary and the church, because ecclesiology and Mariology develop as sciences in this kind of post-feminine to use a very weird language, like the loss of the eclipse of the feminine in the Christian world, Mm. both in the Catholic and the Protestant worlds. Yeah. So, I dicey. I would would definitely agree with that because, I mean, I think it was Bishop Jorge when he was teaching our Mariology class, he had us read hymns from the early Christian centuries about Mary, then like later centuries, like medieval period, and then up to now. And, like, now it's like, you know, we got gentle woman, quiet light, morning star, so strong and bright. And it's like, uh, we could be talking about Janet Reno here. Like, <laughs> like we, we, don't even, we don't even have, like, any way of articulating how amazing she is. Yeah. So, anyways, I would just say, folks, give you some encouragement. Check out the Immaculate Conception. If you can, read the prayers from December 8th. You can find them online. Um, the preface, as well as the, as well as the, you know, the collect and everything, it it explains things so beautifully, and it it all depends on Christ, and and Christ depends on uh, the Father for everything, and so Christ in His humanity depends on Mary, Mary depends on Christ in His humanity and divinity, divinity precedes all of it. So I I don't know it's chicken chicken or the egg. I know. Damn. Okay. Anyways, that's it. We took a stab at it. We we tried. We tried. I learned something very new today, which is Christ had grace in his humanity. I will be looking that up and trying to figure out why. Father Keith Kenny had to take me outside and explain to me why Christ needs a human soul at one point. Because I was like, that's the most ridiculous thing ever. That's like having something hooked up to the electricity and saying it needs a battery. Right. Totally other topic. We got to go to shoutouts here. Shoutouts. Prayers are starting here soon with the brothers. The priests have mass at four thirty. We got some nice uh, gifts. And Good. That's we, what I was going to. So look. I want to thank everybody who sent yeah. us gifts over the last few weeks. We got some really nice stuff. But in particular, we had a couple people who uh, we didn't mystery people. We don't really know where this stuff comes from, right? True. Yeah. So the the mystery person who sent us three bottles of quote cocktail crate craft cocktail mixers. mixers. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Allie Murphy, friend of Scott, Father Scott Bailey's. Who's in RCA at St. Mary's in Littleton? She sent us chocolates. Yes, from Littleton. We have those chocolate up here. shop. I'm sure uh-huh. Father Nathan has already dove into those. And then the Desalis family in Edinburgh, Scotland. Edinburgh, Scotland. 
They sent us a bottle of Lorfrog. Yes, that was already that was already. It's been consumed. Cons- not all the way, but yeah. But um, and also there was a person I think we acknowledged them beforehand that sent us a bottle of Axe and Oak um, bourbon. Uh, I did something today. I was in a meeting via Skype. Don't say anything. And I may have been drinking that during the meeting via Skype. The meeting. <laughs> oh, this oh, the man, cream, you are cream. So cre- okay, next Anyways. shout out. The uh, Amber Nobis from Brew City Catholic I met at La Focaccia Pizza, and she wanted to give a sh- I gave a shout out to her and her friends, Chris and Samantha. And then lastly, met some very nice Illinois people here in Breckenridge nice. on Sunday. Really? Deacon Mark from Rockford and Dan from Glenview Hockey. That a boy. Whoa. Met them at St. Mary's. They came up after Mass and uh, introduced themselves. So thanks, guys. It was great to meet you. And hope you enjoyed your time in snowless Colorado. Yeah, I I literally have no shout-outs. I, I probably have people that I promised one to. But Every week Mike them. starts to fidget. He just has papers like, oh, where's my shout-out list? Oh, yeah. Huh? To Father Mike Rapp, I certainly miss you on this villa. Uh, it has been difficult to not have you here. Father Michael O'Loughlin, we did not think you were coming up. Uh, for the entire time, so what little we thought we were going to get from you has been robbed of us, and uh, we miss you as well. To Father Mike and Father Michael, thank you for another great year. We've passed over 300 podcasts. I think uh, things are going well, and uh, but you never know. We could totally destroy this thing in 2018. Thanks to Molly and Mike and Deacon Tim and Andrea and everybody who supports us. We've got a great team behind us of friends who make nothing and have to put up with all of our answers. True. So thanks to all of them and all of our listeners. Just grateful for another good year. I can't believe it's been eight years. That's right. Cheers. Cheers. Salute. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. All right. We'll catch you next week. Laters. Laters.